0: A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Hello and welcome to the premiere episode of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. In this podcast, we will hear scriptural texts and explore themes, motifs, and literary devices used by the authors to communicate God's word of instruction to us as life-giving bread. First, I want to say a word about the name of the podcast— The expression, a light to the nations, appears throughout the Bible with some variation on the wording in both the Old Testament and the New. For example, Isaiah chapters 49 and 42 and Acts chapter 13. However, many of us are probably most familiar with this phrase from the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, where we hear it in the context of the prayer of St. Simeon, sung as a hymn at the conclusion of Vespers and on the Feast of the Presentation. In Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32, we hear, "'Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word.'" For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. In verse 32, the Lord's salvation is called both a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, or the nations, and also the glory of his people Israel. This is an example of poetic parallelism, and it's a literary device used widely throughout the scriptures. One example of this we might readily recognize is Psalm fifty fifty one, in which verse 5 says, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Scripture has this way of speaking that tends to repeat things, usually for emphasis and often for poetic effect, both of which are achieved by verse 5 of this psalm. It says the same thing twice. It communicates the same idea in two lines, which, although phrased differently, are parallel. The first statement, I know my transgression, is reinforced by the second, my sin is ever before me, and vice versa. The prayer of Simeon is doing the same thing in Luke chapter 2 that the two phrases are different expressions of the same thing is extremely important. It shows that God's salvation is not an exclusive arrangement only for his people Israel, but for the nations as well. In fact, the nations are mentioned first here, something that indicates not only that their inclusion is not merely an afterthought, but also that God can rearrange the order, making the last first, and the first last, whenever he wills it. This is a recurring theme throughout the letters of Paul, particularly Romans chapters 9 through 11, and one we will continue to encounter throughout the Gospel of Luke. In this particular text from Luke chapter 2, the author purposefully arranges the sequence of words in Simeon's prayer to express promise and fulfillment. First, Simeon reveals what he had heard, and then what he is now seeing. He declares that he is ready to depart in peace according to thy, that is, the Lord's word. A word, we know, is something that is heard. Then immediately he says that the reason he is ready is that his eyes have now seen the salvation which the Lord had prepared. The author tells us that Simeon is a just man and righteous, and that he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel, and that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die till he had seen the Lord's Christ. It is indeed the Holy Spirit, through the word of Scripture, that revealed this to Simeon. The name Simeon is derived from a Hebrew word meaning to listen or to hear, and that alone is an important detail in the story. True to the function of his name, Simeon had listened and heard and believed in the promise given in Scripture of consolation through the Lord's Christ. And here, in chapter 2 of Luke, he is granted to behold the fulfillment of that promise by the Lord in the child, brought into the temple, and presented as a first-fruit offering to God. It's a magnificent narrative in which hearing and seeing given equal emphasis but in the proper sequence. The text here mentions the giving of a promise in a word that is heard and also recognizes its fulfillment as something that is both seen with the eyes and held in the arms of the recipient. Chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke begins in Jerusalem with a priest by the name of Zechariah serving in the temple. It is he that becomes the father of John, the forerunner who preaches Christ. The first 25 verses of chapter 1 cover the announcement of John's birth to a mother, Elizabeth, who we are told was barren and well advanced in age. Then, in verses 26 and 27, we hear, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. This abrupt shift in the setting is striking. The birth of Jesus is announced outside of Jerusalem in the temple, in a city of Galilee and to a virgin. Any connection Jerusalem or Judea might have thought it had to this event is dynamited by the author of Luke. And it's a double strike. Not only is the birth of the Christ announced outside of Judea, but it is announced to a virgin, someone who does not know a man. This granting of life that completely overrides the way human beings procreate, and which admittedly is impossible in human terms, is Scripture's forceful way of saying, this is God's doing It's somewhat akin to God telling Abraham that his son Isaac will be born to Sarah at this time next year in Genesis chapter 17, meaning this has nothing to do with biology. It's as if God is saying, forget about the gestation period of nine months. This will happen according to my word, period. Of course, with God, nothing will be impossible, as the Lord's angel tells Mary. And her response is, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And then we hear in the next verses, 39 and 40, that Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Not only does the announcement of the birth of the Christ take place outside of Judea, but it is then carried to Judea, represented by the priest Zechariah and his service to the temple by Mary, the virgin from Galilee. Thus, we see a pattern set early on in Luke's gospel, and it's one that we'll encounter over and over again. Because of Israel's refusal... The offer of salvation comes to the Gentiles, and it is through them, and just as important, it is along with them, that Israel must now receive it. Once again, see Paul's letter to the Romans, particularly chapters 9 through 11. What the narrative of Luke emphasizes is that when Israel refuses, it doesn't necessarily remain cut off. In Christ, the gospel is extended to Israel, but not out of a chosenness or sense of being exceptional. Israel gets in the same way that the Gentiles or nations get in, and Luke expounds in no uncertain terms on what that way is throughout his gospel from the beginning to the end. In chapter 3, verse 3, speaking of John, Christ's forerunner, Luke says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And in the last chapter of Luke, we hear Jesus speaking to the eleven just before his ascension into heaven. And he tells them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Luke chapter 24, verses 26 and 27. So there you have it. In the end, Israel is no better or no worse than anyone. They are simply one of the nations. Scripture is clear on this point. No one gets to be exceptional or special. If you are special at all, it is only as an example used for the edification of others. To say it another way, you become the example of what not to do. In spite of your wandering astray, God uses your punishment and correction to achieve His purpose according to His will. Your screwing it up becomes a blessing to those on the outside. It's a fulfillment of what God told Abram when he promised him that in your seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed. That mechanism is key to understanding the scriptural story as a whole, and particularly how we understand Israel being called a light to the nations. In Isaiah chapter 42, the subject of which is the Lord's servant, his chosen, his Christ, we hear in verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people as a light to the Gentiles. It's worth noting that in the Septuagint rendering of this passage, the servant is specifically called by the names Jacob and Israel. I want to make one final note about poetic parallelism here. Our worship in the Church definitely picks up on this literary device and makes use of it more than we realize Earlier this year, at the Feast of the Presentation during Orthros, the second verse of the ninth ode of the canon made my ears prick up. It says, The righteous Simeon now embraces in his arms both the author of the law and the master of all things. Just listen to how that verse uses parallelism taken directly from Genesis, where God is called at times both Yahweh the author of the law, and Elohim, the master of all things. It's simply phenomenal. The verse is not saying that Simeon held two people in his arms, but rather the one he held is identified by two functional names of God from the Old Testament, which are usually translated as the Lord and God, respectively. I hope you've enjoyed this premiere episode of the podcast. I look forward to meeting again. Until then, let us now, Lord, depart in peace according to your word.